June 20th, 1951. Upon the receipt of an allegation that a present or former employee of any branch of the United States government is a sex deviant, such information in all cases should be disseminated. We get J. Edgar Hoover sex deviant program memo of 1951. For us, it was an aha moment that we've got J. Edgar Hoover in our sights and we're seeing him provide his brand of sick, obsessive focus on gay America. Each supervisor will be held personally responsible to underline in green pencil the names of individuals who are alleged to be sex deviants. Very truly yours, John Edgar Hoover. He's instructing his people to become plants in each arm of the federal government to identify potential accused homosexuals, report back to him, and then let them investigate. The plants were also instructed to leak the names of gays, in some cases anonymously, to their employers. In terms of FBI abuses, this ranks at the top. It was an effort to silence them. It was an effort to ruin their lives. Because if you were exposed as gay in the 1950s or 1960s, your life as you knew it was over. That was an excerpt from a Yahoo News documentary in 2015 called Uniquely Nasty, with the actor George Takei of Star Trek fame voicing the very real words of the longtime director of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover. Uniquely Nasty explored the little-known story of the U.S. government's relentless persecution of gays in the Cold War era, focusing in part on how the FBI, under Hoover's direction, tracked the names of tens of thousands of suspected gays and lesbians working for the federal government, and then took steps to have them fired. It was just one piece of a so-called lavender scare that left in its wake a trail of fear, paranoia, and destroyed lives. The full story of the U.S. government's jihad against gay America is now being told in a landmark book, The Secret City, The Hidden History of Gay Washington, by journalist James Kerchick. Kerchick's book brings to life the largely invisible stories of senior government officials at the State Department, the White House, and in Congress who lived in fear that their secret lives would become publicly known and how their careers were shattered when their homosexuality was exposed, often for political or bureaucratic advantage. It's a shocking story that is a reminder of how much about America's dark past of persecution has been obscured yet remains highly relevant to themes in our current politics. We'll talk to Kerchik about the excruciating agony that denizens of the Secret City experienced and why it is a crucial chapter in American history on this episode of Skullduggery's Buried Treasure. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. I will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a Senior Counsel at States United. 
So I can't tell you all how eagerly I've been waiting for this interview with James Kerchick and to read his book, which is just a magnificent read. I mean, there is so much in here that I think will blow readers' minds away. When I first did the uh, Uniquely Nasty documentary back in 2015, that was the year that the same-sex marriage decision was coming down from the Supreme Court, it seemed like a milestone in our progress. But reading Kerchik is just a, a really graphic reminder of just how far we've come because, you know, the levels of fear, of persecution, of prejudice was just off the charts back in the days of the Cold War. And yet, many of those same themes remain with us today. Yeah, but also, yes, how far we've come, but also reading this dark, sordid, sad chapter in our history makes you realize this was a, an issue that couldn't even be talked about at all. Everything, everybody was pushed into the shadows. Newspapers wouldn't write about the subject. The word homosexuality uh, wouldn't be used because it was so taboo. And one of the things that I find striking about this story is because of that, because gay people were pushed into the shadows the way they were, that also drove kind of conspiratorial mindset about gays uh, in this country that then was also happening in parallel to uh, the Red Scare. So you had the Ra Lavender Scare and the Red Scare going on at the same time. And it was this kind of weird sort of self-fulfilling prophecy. There was just no way out of it because of those attitudes that, by the way, transcended ideology and politics. Nobody really in positions of power were willing to tolerate gay life in America at the time. It was completely taboo. You know, I just want to pick up on one thing you said. You mentioned the Red Scare, which was, you know, McCarthyism. It's all happening at the same time. But what's astonishing is uh, the victims of the simultaneous Lavender Scare were far more numerous than the victims of the Red Scare. I mean, one of the sort of uh, really stunning figures in Kerchick's book, he talks about how with the onset of the Cold War, the State Department launches a loyalty program to ferret out communists right? Communists and sexual deviants. Well, guess who comprised most of the population of people who were axed as a result of this? Gays in the State Department, gays and lesbians comprised 54 of the 66 people fired under the loyalty program guidelines in 1950, 119 of the 154 in 1951, and 134 of the 204 in 1952. So, yeah, we all know about McCarthyism. It's studied in schools. It's talked about. Yet the real victims were not communists or suspected communists. It was gays and lesbians. But to also follow up on something that Danny said, which was about the kind of the conspiratorial tone of a lot of this, there were over the course of, you know, 80 years or more in the U.S. government and in kind of just the general kind of atmosphere of D.C., a constant hunt for gay cabals, for cabals of of gay men and women who were getting together and plotting to drive American policy in nefarious or evil directions. 
And what is amazing, of course, or perhaps not so amazing, is that this kind of sense that there is a gay cabal or a, a kind of a, a gay elite who are controlling Americans' culture and the uh, mindset of America persists to this very day. Yeah, I was going to say, Victoria, as you were saying that, I was thinking they didn't just talk about it as a cabal. People talked about it as a contagion that would spread to other people. That was the fear. And that, I think, is what you're seeing with the don't say gay bills and um, all of the groomer rhetoric and, and, and the groomer and the groomer rhetoric. It's it, it is um, definite, you know, echoes uh, there. Absolutely. Well, look, there is so much to talk about with James Kerchick. So I don't want to take up more time because we should all be hearing to him. I should point out, by the way, if folks who are interested can still uh, watch Uniquely Nasty, it's on available on YouTube. But if you do, you should definitely also read and get a copy of Kerchick's book, Secret City. So let's get to it. All right, we now have with us James Kerchick, the author of Secret City, The Hidden History of Gay Washington. James, welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you for having me. And just to start out, congrats on the book. It is such a terrific read. There are so many great stories, rich stories to tell that I want to get into in this podcast, but just amazing research you've done here. And I guess... I'd just like to start out by telling us a little bit about how you came to write this book and why the story you're telling is so important for people to know. Well, I've always been interested in American history, in particular Cold War era history, everything from sort of the intellectual debates that went on among, you know, anti-Stalinist liberals in the 1930s and 40s to the third world Cold War battles in Africa and Latin America. I worked for Radio Free Europe, which is one of these great Cold War legacy institutions. I've lived in Berlin, which was the epicenter of the Cold War. I love espionage movies and whatnot. So that's always been my passion. And at Yale, I was very fortunate to study with John Lewis Gaddis, who's the dean of Cold War uh, historians. He also taught a class. It was a seminar on the art of biography. And he's a great biographer as well. He wrote George Kennan's biography, which won the Pulitzer Prize. And for this class, we'd, we would read a biography every week. And then the final project was we had to write our, our own biography of a figure living her dead or dead whose papers were held at the Yale uh, Library. And I chose Larry Kramer, the hmm. late AIDS activist, playwright, gay activist, very famous Yale graduate. And he had just donated his papers to Yale. And so I met him, I got to interview him, I went through, went through his papers. And so it was sort of the combination. I think that's where sort of the seeds were planted in the back of my mind was there's this fascinating, my fascination with Cold War drama and Cold War history and my own identity as a, as a gay man and being interested in gay history and knowing Larry Kramer, who was just obsessed with finding gay stories from the past, which had been you know erased or, or overlooked or ignored. And that's why I think it's an important story, because as the title indicates, you know, this is a city where secrets are a form of power. I'm, I'm, I'm quoting um, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who wrote a very famous book on secrecy and secrecy, as you know, you all know, uh, you've all you all cover this. 
that secrets, particularly from World War II onwards, when when America becomes a global superpower and managing and collecting secrets becomes the form of currency in Washington, that the most dangerous secret of all is homosexuality. And that to me just seems like a great way to look at the history of Washington, uh, a city that runs on secrets, that's fueled by secrets, where secrets are weapons. What's the most dangerous secret? It's, it's being gay. And so that to me just seemed, you know, as a journalist, you're always looking for a new angle, something new to tell, a new story to tell. And no one had really tackled this subject. There have been elements of it that have been written about. There was a book written almost 20 years ago about the Lavender Scare. And it's, it's, a, it's, it's a good book, but it's, a, it's, a, it's only about a couple of years in the 1950s. No one had looked at this whole span of history from really the New Deal until the end of the Cold War through the prism of what I call the specter of homosexuality. I share your fascination with with Cold War history and espionage daring do, but I'm also a connoisseur of of political scandals. And, you know, what really leapt out at me in your book was the extent to which homosexuality was kind of a subtext for so many scandals of the era from the Hiss Whitaker Chambers saga to the Army McCarthy hearings to Walter Jenkins during LBJ, time and time again, the threat of exposure of the secret of homosexuality sort of loomed over so many of these cases. Well, if you think of McCarthyism, you just mentioned it. McCarthyism basically begins and ends with two scandals that are very deeply intertwined with homosexuality. You mentioned the Hiss Chambers case. That's really the that lays the groundwork for McCarthy, like the exposure of Alger Hiss, of a very senior uh, ranking State Department official as a Soviet spy. That basically gives McCarthy the fodder that he needs to launch his Red Scare. And that, uh, there's two chapters on the Hiss Chambers case. That is, I mean, it's never mentioned explicitly during the case, but it is just you know, laden with with homosexual subtext that Chambers was was supposed to be a gay man who was spurned by Hiss. And that was his motive for exposing Hiss as a communist spy. It's very vengeance. Right. And so right. and then McCarthyism ends, as we all know, it's that famous encounter between Joseph Welch, the army lawyer. Have you no decency, sir? Have you no decency? Right. That whole scandal, the army McCarthy hearings basically start because Roy Cohn, who's the special counsel to Joe McCarthy, basically has this, I think it's an unrequited love affair with with a, with an army private, David Shine, and is so insistent on getting him a, a deferment and he browbeats McCarthy into waging war on the army. That's what basically brings down McCarthy is another gay themed scandal. So like the bookends of McCarthyism are both basically gay. Yeah, well, we're going to, James, we're going to get into a lot of these stories, uh, but just one more beat on this. I just want you to explore and explain a little more what it was in, in the psyche of people in power in Washington and in the culture that ends up linking anti-communism with uh, people being anti-gay. You, you write right. in your book, the His Chambers Affair established a link between communism, disloyalty, and homosexuality in the minds of influential Washingtonians, broadening the incipient Red Scare into a lavender one. Right. So Whitaker Chambers did have a gay past while he was in the communist underground. Just to give your listeners just some background. So Whitaker Chambers is a, in 1948, is a very well-known journalist for Time magazine. 
senior editor, and he comes out, so to speak, announcing that he had been in a previous life as a younger man, an emissary, a messenger in the communist underground in America, and that Alger Hiss was a member of his cell, basically. These are explosive allegations. And Chambers also had another secret, a secret that he did not want to share, which was that he also had a gay past. And we know of this because he admitted it to the FBI. And he did so because he was getting word that the Hiss forces were starting a whisper campaign to smear him as basically a spurned homosexual, that Hiss had you know, resisted his advances and this was his way of getting fairy vengeance. And so to preempt this, he went to the FBI, he gave a confession and explained his, his gay life. And again, it was never publicly mentioned, although there were lots of sort of insinuations and whatnot, but people in Washington in the know heard these stories. And so that's, that, that was one of the ways in, this, in which this began, this association between communism and homosexuality, that communists live in shadows, they live double lives. And in fact, if you read Chambers's memoir, Witness, which is really one of the great autobiographies of the 20th century, and you read his descriptions of spycraft, you know, of, of going to these, you know, uh, standing at a news rack and basically exchanging glances with another man, and then going off so they can exchange messages. It reads remarkably similar to what it, what gay men used to do cruising for, for sex in that era. Um, and one can't help but wonder if that was maybe a kind of unconscious subtext when Chambers was writing this book. And I, I take one paragraph in particular and show how, this, how this, uh, these, these, these connections. And then I would say the next real connection between anti-communism, and you could say homophobia, although that word is more of, a, of modern vintage, but anti-gay sentiment would be in 1950, you know, February 9th, 1950, Joe McCarthy gives his wheeling West Virginia speech where he's waving that list. I have in my hand a list of anti, of a list of communists in the State Department, right? Less than three weeks later, Dean Acheson is testifying before the Senate along with one of his deputies answering these charges. And basically in passing, his deputy mentions that 91 people had been fired from the State Department for being sexual perverts. That was the term that they used. And this causes an uproar. And in fact, the mail that Senator McCarthy got, the tens of thousands of letters that he received in the weeks after these revelations, it was reported that only 25% of those letters were primarily concerned with communists. The rest were concerned with sexual perverts. And so these become intertwined partly because there's this fear that gay people are susceptible to blackmail because of their secret, that they will do anything to hide and to keep that a secret, right? So they're more vulnerable to blackmail than other people. But then there's a deeper sort of philosophical or ideological connection that's being made that you know, sexual nonconformists or sexual subversives are also political subversives. And you know, everything in our, I mean, I'm very much an anti-communist, but it, it went quite, too far in the 1950s, such that you know every negative trait was was ascribed to communists. Right? They're they're fat. They're ugly. They're evil. They're sexual perverts. They're this. They're that. So it just sort of came naturally that you would associate these two horrible things together. And I think another important development in this, also in 1948, the same year as the Hiss Chambers case, is the Kinsey report comes out. This is the famous report that finds that around 10% of the population is gay. And this is a shock, a shock. I mean, homosexuality was a subject that was never discussed, except in like medical environments, right? You did not talk about this issue. 
And in fact, one of the in interesting themes in my book is all the euphemisms that people would come up with to talk about homosexuality, because saying, even saying the word homosexual was deemed taboo and offensive. And so in 1948, you have this Kinsey report comes out and suddenly it's, oh my God, 10% of the population is gay. What does that mean? It means that they must be all over the place and they're hiding because we used to think it was just, you know, degenerates in public parks and sex criminals and sexual psychopaths. But now it, now it means, you know, it, it, it could be the milkman. It could be the teacher. It could be the, the high government official. They could be everywhere. And so the mode of thinking about communism and homosexuality is very similar, right? That these are secret people. They lurk in the shadows. They're trying to subvert our society. They're trying to undermine us. Another interesting theme is this belief that homosexuals, because they are dispersed throughout the world, throughout the population, all different classes, that they're not loyal to the countries in which they live. That's sort of a it's a transnational fraternity, that homosexuality transcends national borders. And so a homosexual's loyalty is towards his fellow homosexuals, perhaps in the Soviet Union or in other countries, not to his own land. It's very similar to anti-Semitism in that way. It's a very kind of conspiratorial form of bigotry. So all these things are coming together in the late 1940s and 1950s. And it's a very combustible combination. So, you know, they, they say history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And yeah. not, to, not to take us too far into the, the kind of current events, it must be sort of, and your, and your book ends with the Clinton administration. Nevertheless, it must be rather today's, you know, kind of anti-communism and anti-groomer, anti-trans mm -hmm movement must rhyme a lot with some of the things in your book. I, do, do you regret ending with the, the Clinton era? Is there something that you would write about today? Well, I actually have an essay. It's published in New York Magazine this week, and it's all about this recurring theme of the Hominturn, the Homosexual International, right, which is a play on Comintern. And it goes back to the early 20th century. There was a a political scandal in, in Wilhelmine, Germany, about a supposed circle of homosexuals surrounding the Kaiser. And it gets just repeated and repeated and repeated. So I actually have an, I would, I would urge your readers to, to check that out. It's at New York Magazine. I mean, I decided to start and end the book. Um, it was very deliberate. The book starts around World War II, because that is when homosexuality goes from being a sin, right? Or, or just a medical condition to a national security threat. And I ended in 1995 with the Clinton administration because that is the year that the ban on gay people receiving security clearances is lifted. So certainly, you know, there's gay history after 1995, of course. The closet still goes on and there's homophobia and whatnot. But for the purposes of my book, which is quite long, I didn't want it to be, it didn't need to be any longer. Um, I decided that those would be good bookends, right? That this is really the era of when sort of the officially imposed secrecy on gay people it was from World War II until the middle of the 1990s, the end of the Cold War, basically. So, James, your your book is long, but it's long because there are so many great stories in it Thank to you. tell. And I want I want to I want to go over some of them that I think most of our listeners are probably not terribly familiar with. Let's start with FDR and the story of Sumner Wells. Yeah. Tell us who he was, how he got in the crosshairs of certain adversaries in the government, and ending with that extraordinary confrontation between <laughs> Roosevelt and William Bullitt, yeah. another senior diplomat who was out to get Sumner yeah. Wells. Tell us the story. 
Sumner Wells is a, a brilliant diplomat. He's, he's you know, to, of, of the, the people who were in the State Department in that era was all sort of upper upper class blue blood wasps. And he was this to a T. Uh, he was, you know, descended from the Mayflower. He was a, a friend of the Roosevelt's. I think he was actually a cousin of Eleanor, um, went to Groton, Harvard, graduated in three years. Typical story, right? Very talented, very intelligent, uh, wrote the Atlantic Charter. He was on the presidential train on the way home from a f- the funeral of the Speaker of the House and drunkenly propositioned a series of African-American porters on the train. And this story finds its way to Cordell Hull, who is the conservative Southern Democrat, former senator, secretary of state, and William Bullitt, who's a fascinating character in his own right and has been interesting books, biographies have been written about Bullitt. He was the first ambassador to the Soviet Union, uh, ambassador to France, a very colorful character, perhaps also maybe a closeted gay man himself. There's some evidence. Which is a theme, a recurring theme in your book. in the book, right, of gay people, you know, behaving terribly against other gay people, right, of sort of using homosexuality as, 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 as a weapon against their own kind. And so he and Hull basically spend almost three years scheming to get rid of Wells because they each have their reasons for resenting him. You know, Hull doesn't like the fact that Wells is so close to FDR, they're family friends. And FDR basically doesn't listen to Hull. He just has him there because he needs him to keep the Southern Democrats in his in his coalition. Bullet is very jealous. He's a contemporary of Wells. He wants his job. Um, and so the two of them use these accusations. And interestingly, FDR stands by Wells for quite some time. And you know, while this is going on, there's another gay scandal brewing with the senator from Massachusetts, David Walsh who's implicated in a gay Nazi brothel in Brooklyn by the New York Post, which was a liberal newspaper at the time. And Walsh was an isolationist Democrat. And FDR was perfectly happy with the campaign to basically destroy David Walsh because Walsh was was an adversary of his. Yet at the same time, he's trying to defend Sumner Wells from the same charge because he's an ally and a friend. But Walsh is destroyed, even though the accusations against Walsh aren't true. He's the victim of the very first outing in American politics. In 1942, the New York Post blasts his name as being uh, involved, as as being a patron of this male brothel. And even though the even though the FBI disproves the charges. I just wanted to break in here for one second, because you mentioned that the New York Post was a liberal newspaper, a man named Morris Ernst. Yeah plays a key role in this. He's what, the general counsel? Of the Post and the the ACLU. And And the ACLU. And that was the point that I thought was fascinating, which is at this period in time, the anti-gay sentiment transcends uh, ideology and, and, you know, which I thought was so interesting. Yeah, and I think it's important to recognize that because we have a tendency to sort of judge history by our own standards. I think to really understand the severity of how bad it was for gay people in America. They had no allies, okay? Not even the ACLU was going to defend them, right? So the New York Post, which was the newspaper, as hard as it is to believe today, the New York Post was the newspaper of sort of the intellectual elite in New York, the liberal intellectual elite at the time. And so this newspaper, in cahoots with the general counsel of the ACLU, was basically running a smear campaign, an anti-gay smear campaign against a, a conservative isolationist 
senator. And it was the right wing Chicago Tribune of, of General of Colonel, Colonel McCormick. McCormick, very, very right wing anti New Deal figure in American history. They were defending the man, you know, improperly the, who was gay. Walsh was almost certainly gay. He was not frequenting a brothel with Nazi spies, but they were in the position of defending him. And so I think it's just important to realize. And then I'm, you know, the, the his chambers case, right? You have all the progressive elites. Hiss was the president of the Carnegie Foundation, the Carnegie in, in, Institution. Uh, they all lined up to defend Alger Hiss, and many of them were engaged in a homophobic whisper campaign against Whitaker Chambers. Roy Cohn in 1954, the same man, Joe Welch, who liberals love today as a hero for destroying Joe McCarthy and constantly citing that, that wonderful takedown of McCarthy, have you no decency, sir. During those same hearings, it was Joe Welch who was gay baiting Roy Cohn, calling him a pixie, which he, as he said, was a relative of a fairy. Okay. And everyone was giggling in that hearing room. They all knew who he was talking about. Right. So there are these instances, these very kind of high profile instances of liberals, liberals for their day, using homophobia, homophobic insinuation to attack their political rivals. I think it's important. That and yet that when Bullitt goes to FDR and yeah. says you have to fire Sumner Wells, Roosevelt won't do it. He won't do it. And the only reason he does is because some senators on the Hill are threatening to go public with it or they're, they're threatening to launch an investigation. But FDR pushed back. FDR fights. He resists. And he screws over William Bullitt. William Bullitt at the time was running to be mayor of Philadelphia. And FDR basically called up the political machine in Philadelphia and ensured that he didn't win that election and basically condemned him. But FDR eventually relents and he, and he gets Wells' resignation. He really doesn't want to do it. He does. The other story, well, there are many stories, but the next one I want you to tell is one I know well because we dealt with it when we did the film uh, Uniquely Nasty a number of years ago, and that's the story of Lester Hunt, yeah. the senator from Wyoming, yeah. whose son, Buddy Hunt, is arrested yeah. for solicitation in Lafayette yeah. Park. Right. Tell that story and what happened to yeah. Lester Hunt. And uh, he was a Democratic senator from Wyoming. And it was an election year and uh, the Senate was evenly divided. It's 1954. 1954. And uh, so, again, right during the Army McCarthy hearings and two Senate allies of Joe McCarthy basically threatened to out Buddy Hunt. And unless son of the senator, the son of the senator, unless he resigns. And even though Hunt announces that he will not run for reelection, they persist in this. And McCarthy makes a vague threat that he is going to release some damaging information about a U.S. senator. That's all he'll say. The next day, Lester Hunt goes into his office in the Senate. He's carrying a rifle, which at the time was not unusual for members, particularly ones from Western states, to carry firearms into the Capitol. He goes up to his office and he blows his brains out. And it's the first and only suicide in the Capitol. And even after that, the real cause of this is not, it's barely mentioned in the press. You know, Drew Pearson, who's kind of a recurring figure, one of these muck, muckraking uh, journalists with the, with the fedora, you know, like right out of central casting. He writes about the Buddy Hunt story, but no one else touches it. In fact, the Washington Post, which was the major newspaper that he was syndicated in, did not run Pearson's column about this. 
which is interesting because the Post would not run when when Pearson later broke the story of a, of a gay scandal in Reagan's when Ronald Reagan was governor of California, the Post wouldn't run that column either. So it just shows you there's there's such hesitancy uh, in tiptoeing around this issue. And but the story is fictionalized yes. in the best selling novel and later made into a major yeah. Hollywood movie, Advise and Consent. Advise and Consent, which is actually based on two other stories involving homosexuality and power. So there's there's that one. And then uh, so basically advising consent is about a a left wing appointee to be ambassador to the Soviet Union. And there's one senator who heroically stands up against him. He had a gay affair as a soldier and the left wing supporters of this nominee threatened to blackmail this senator and he kills himself in his Senate office. So it's it's somewhat based on that story of Lester Hunt. It's also sort of based on the His Chambers affair with this sort of with this State Department official with a shady secret communist past. And then it's also based on the nomination fight over Charles Boland to be ambassador to the Soviet Union, who was Eisenhower's uh, ambassador to the Soviet Union. This is in the opening months of the Eisenhower administration. And Boland had been at Yalta, which is the curse word for the American right at the time. That's when you know, the Truman administration gave away Eastern Europe to the Soviets, right? And so merely by dint of his being at Yalta, Boland is an enemy of the McCarthyites. And the McCarthyites start trying to find evidence that Boland is gay. And they interview all these anonymous people who've worked with him in the past, some of whom say, well, he walks a funny way and he he moves his fingers in, a, in an effeminate manner and he has a certain lisp in his voice. None of this is true. Charles Boland was married with children, was had a pretty vigorously heterosexual past, as his friends attested. But this is this is one of the opening fights between the McCarthyites and the moderate wing of the Republican Party of the Eisenhower administration. And it's over this um, nominee whom they use these concocted allegations of homosexuality. So advising consent, I actually argue, I actually think it's one of it, it should it should have a place in American literature as having one of the earliest sort of gay heroes of American mainstream fiction, because gay people had been so demonized in popular culture as murderers, as villains. And here you have this upstanding senator who has a gay past, but the author is very sympathetic towards it. And he actually condemns the people who are attacking him for being gay. It's a fascinating book advising consent because Alan Drew, it's, it's a very anti-communist book. It's a very almost right-wing anti-communist book, but it's, its sexual politics are extremely ahead of its time. So, you know, we've talked a lot about the link between communism and homosexuality or the, the kind of the alleged link of it uh, during the 1950s. Let's talk about it during the civil rights era. Yeah. One of my favorite civil rights characters makes a brief appearance in your book, and that's Bayard Rustin. He was a different story with a different outcome than many yes. of the things we've talked about. What made him distinct? Tell us more about him. He was a he's a great a uh, moral titan of the 20th century, actually. I think he's a very underappreciated figure in American history. He's the organizer of the March on Washington, had many civil rights victories and, and activities before that. And he was a gay man. He was an openly gay man. And that's what I think makes his story different. He was and openly he was also gay. And a it, communist, right? He had, been a, he had been a communist in his youth. He actually became a great anti-communist, a left-wing, he was a socialist anti-communist. 
But yes, he had a communist background. He rejected the Communist Party when he realized that they were exploiting the race issue for their own purposes and that communists were not actually the friend of, of the African-American. He, in 1963, is leading, is organizing this massive undertaking, this march on Washington, when Strom Thurmond, three weeks before the march, decides to go down to the floor of the Senate. Someone, probably the FBI, uh, had given him a series of arrest records that by Rustin had. Yeah, this is just, I need to give some historical background here. If you were a gay man in this era and you were sexually active in some way, you were at great risk for being arrested, right? Because there were no real legitimate healthy ways to express your sexuality. I mean, there were no like dating columns in the newspaper. Uh, it was not, I mean, you had to live a hidden life. And so gay men looking for sex as adults tend to do would find it in public parks and public restrooms and in, in public spaces. And this meant that gay male sexuality was heavily policed and heavily surveilled. And so Bayard Rustin had been arrested for having sex in a, in a parked car in Pasadena, California. And this arrest record finds its way to Strom Thurmond. And he goes down on the floor of the Senate. And this is right after uh, Bayard Rustin has been the recipient of a very positive Washington Post profile. And Thurman goes down and, and, and denounces Rustin as a sexual pervert. And it's pretty incredible when you think about it, because this presented quite a challenge to the civil rights leaders, to Martin Luther King and his allies. It would have been easy for them to fire Rustin, but they chose not to. They chose to stand by him. And I think there are several reasons for this. One, as I said, Rustin was openly gay in the sense that one would at the time. He wasn't going around writing articles about it, but it was known that he was gay. Martin Luther King knew he was gay. He didn't make a secret of it. And so that made the accusation harder to, to sting. I also think that the civil rights leaders did not want to be seen as giving a victory to Strom Thurmond. I mean, they knew that this what this was about. This was not about his concern for the sexual ethics of civil rights leaders. It was, I mean, as we now know, Strom Thurmond himself was not the most sexually ethical person, right? So this was about impugning the civil rights movement. And they'd want to give a victory to, to one of their greatest enemies. So they stand by him. And this probably counts as the first instance of a public figure being outed and then surviving. And it did not destroy his career. It might have hindered him in the future. Maybe he would have got on to bigger and brighter things. But Bayard Rustin had a very remarkable career for the rest of his life, leading all sorts of you know, human rights movements and causes um, around the country and, and around the world. And you, you say that every August 28th, Bayard Rustin symbolically, uh, I guess, thanked Strom Thurmond. Tell he sent us about a rose. That. He said he sent a rose to, every year to Strom Thurmond's office. Okay, so that's taking place during the, the Kennedy administration. Yeah. Let's move forward in the American presidency to LBJ. And there are two episodes that I want to briefly talk about. One of them, I think it's fair to say, is about a, a key aide to LBJ, who may be the most important aide that no one's really ever heard of. Uh, and his name is Bob Waldron, Yeah, uh, which I, I thought was a very poignant story. Tell us briefly about Bob Waldron, and then I want to ask you, about a more prominent controversy. Bob Waldron was a young man from Texas who worked for a congressman in the late 1950s and got to know LBJ. LBJ, who at the time was the Senate Majority Leader, and he had this way of sort of attracting people to work for him. It didn't matter if they worked on other 
Texas senators or congressmen staffs, he would basically just bring them on and they'd be on the payroll of someone else, but they'd be working for LBJ. That's kind of how it worked. And Bob Waldron was one of these individuals. And he basically became LBJ's body man, which is a very Washington term. It's the guy who is, you know, following the senator or the president around, has the bottle of waters, carrying his bags, making sure he's where he needs to be on time, you know, taking the things that people randomly give to politicians all the time, right? He he's collecting them all. He's basically his right-hand man. Um, and he works for him when he's Senate majority leader. He works, he's traveling the world with LBJ when he is vice president. And then after the Kennedy assassination, LBJ is trying to get him onto his White House staff. And this requires a background check. And the background check discovers that Bob Waldron is gay. And at that instant, his life just falls apart. He is banished from the White House. His name comes up, well, he's banished from the White House. His political career is basically over at that point. And I think one of the one of the fine, one of the one of the one of the really moving finds in my book is I found the letter that Waldron wrote to the man who outed him to the Civil Service Commission. And it's a really heartbreaking letter. And there's one phrase that he used that I thought was very poignant. And he says that our society does not permit a return to gay people, that once we've been banished, we can't come back in, right? Like I can go be a hairdresser. There, there are certain jobs that we stereotypically are allowed to perform, but government service we're not allowed to do. And now I've, I've been banished and I'm not allowed to return. And it's a, it's a very sad story. He went on, Waldron went on to have a very successful career as it happened as an interior decorator. But and, and he, he never talked about this publicly. He did not really discuss it at all with even close friends of his. I actually interviewed um, Linda Bird Johnson, the daughter um, she didn't know this story. She was very close to him. He ended up dying of AIDS, actually, in the 1990s. And clearly, he didn't achieve everything that he could have achieved no. uh, in in government. Someone who already was in a position of uh, considerable power in the Johnson administration, who was then also outed, was Walter Jenkins. Yeah. Um, I, I have a uh, Isakoff knows this. I have a personal fascination with that story. Because, and I, I can explain after you talk about this, but be, uh, because I, at one point I was Washington bureau chief of Newsweek, um, <laughs> and I came upon a file in my assistant's um, office, uh, and you tell the story, and then I'll explain what that was. Well, I'm fa- I really want to hear this because Walter Jenkins uh, on the evening because <laughs> it of begins a- at the Newsweek Washington. Well, he's yeah. about to tell that story. <laughs> it's, the yeah, it's, the, right. it's the bureau. It's the it's a party at the Washington bureau of Newsweek. It's hosted by Ben. Brown. Bradley, who at the time was the Washington editor of Newsweek, and Catherine Graham, the publisher of the Washington Post, which owned Newsweek. And Walter Jenkins uh, leaves his office at the White House, goes up there for an hour, drinks a little too much than he should have, leaves the party, goes to the YMCA around the corner, gets arrested for engaging in oral sex with someone in the bathroom at the YMCA. And the record of this is kept secret for about a week until someone in the police department leaks it to a series of journalists. And if there's, there's an amusing anecdote in the book where the White House press office is starting to get calls about Walter Jenkins being arrested. And they decide to send out Clark Clifford, who's really the original Washington fixer, had worked in the Truman administration and became the first real Washington super lawyer, power lawyer, right? Real Democratic bigwig. He and Abe Fortas, who was a close legal advisor to Johnson, they go from newspaper to newspaper to newspaper, 
trying to convince the editors of these newspapers, do not publish anything about Walter Jenkins being arrested at the YMCA. And each of the editors of these papers agree, which just goes to show you that Washington was a very different city because that sort of thing would not really work anymore, where you can just have, you know- Be out was, in Twitter in a heartbeat. Of course, right? right? So it was, it, was, it was a city run on these sort of gentlemen's agreements, right? Then what forced their hand was that the Republican Party, they got a hold of this and they announced it. And at that point, there was no way of escaping it. And it's funny, I believe Ben Bradley, this might've been apocryphal, but I think Ben Bradley would, would later speak of that he felt guilty or he felt responsible for this because he was the one who supplied the liquor that Walter Jenkins imbibed that led him to go, you know, unfortunately get himself into trouble. But this, this explodes. This, this becomes a huge front page story across the land. And it's funny when I would, talking to older, often straight people about this book that I was writing of a certain generation, people who were born, you know, baby boomers, they told me that the Jenkins case was the first time that they realized or understood or heard about homosexuality that it was not spoken of at all until that day when it was on the front page of the paper and their father, usually it was their father, had to explain to them, what was this? Why was this man arrested in the bathroom? And so it, I, I really believe that, and it, it would be hard to do a survey on this, but I think that that scandal, I think it forced a lot of conversations in this country um, at dinner tables in local communities, right? Because it showed that you know, the most dutiful, diligent aide to the president, a man who was married with five children, you know, he was a very strong Catholic that he could be gay. And what does gay mean? What is this homosexuality thing? You mentioned the uh, the liquor, um, <laughs> which uh, tees up uh, the story I'm about to tell. So I'm kind of puttering around uh, the Washington bureau late one evening. And by the way, the party that Kay Graham and Ben Bradley threw was for the opening of the new yes. Newsweek bureau, right. which was yes. seven on 1750 Pennsylvania Avenue, a few steps away from from the White House. And I'm going through my, I'm, I was looking for something, and I'm going through my assistant's files, and I see a file that says Newsweek Bureau Parties. And I said, well, that's interesting. And I pull it out, and I start looking. And most of them are fairly recent. But there's one dating back to, what year was it? Uh, 60, 64. 64. Uh, dating back to 64. And it happened to be a little thicker than the other ones. And I open it up. And it is the file for that particular party with the guest list and all the food. There, I believe there were some pictures in there. And there's also the liquor bill. So a couple of things. Uh, one is the guest list was extraordinary. Uh, there were cabinet members. I believe there was at least one Supreme Court justice. And there's also a note from Jack Valenti to Kay Graham regretting uh, that President Johnson won't be able to make the party because oh, I wow. believe he was traveling overseas. Uh, but my favorite part was the liquor bill, which, I, as I recall, it ran <laughs> over a couple of pages. And also, it was uh, the kind of alcohol that are not really all that common these days. Like, uh, there was a lot of Dubonnet, but there was a ton of gin. Wow. A huge amount of gin. Wow. And um, there probably wasn't a picture of this, but in my mind, the Bureau had a big wraparound terrace which Issachar will remember well, that had a terrific view of the mall and you could see the White House. And I still imagine Walter Jenkins on that balcony with martinis. I think he was drinking martinis that night. And um, yes, I regret to say <laughs> that I did not 
take that file and keep it. I imagine it's in some Newsweek archive somewhere. I did tell Robert Caro about it once, and he uh, he got very excited. So pretty extraordinary. He's probably uh, found it. Um, so, James, one uh, recurring figure in your book and in so many of these stories is J. Edgar Hoover, the FBI yeah. director, who launched the Sex Deviates program in 1951 to identify all gays and lesbians working for the federal government and then arranged to get them fired. Uh, and yet, as everybody knows, there were always questions about Hoover's own sexuality. You obviously grappled with this in the book. So I'd like to hear your assessment of the role of J. Edgar Hoover and to what extent the rumors about his private life are relevant. It is this weird, it's this paradox, right? That that the man atop this legal architecture that is oppressing gay people may have been gay himself. There's no evidence for it. I think there's a lot of circumstantial evidence if you look at his relationship. His relationship right? with Clyde Tolson. Clyde Tolson, start. right? Yeah. They're lunching every day at the Mayflower. They're going on vacations together. It's this crazy, it's like very out in the open where it seems something might must be going on, right? I think that's a little bit of kind of historical 2020, us, us looking back on something. And although, although James, I should say, if you look at the pictures of the yeah. two of them together, particularly when they were vacationing in Miami, uh, they are clearly suggestive. Absolutely. And, and looks and, and, at Tolson in ways that, you know, you would yeah. not expect. And certainly it's written about it. People are writing about it. They are hinting about it in, in the media. They're insinuations. You know, the aforementioned Drew Pearson was a longtime antagonist of Hoover and was absolutely convinced that he was a sex devious and would sort of hint at it in, in, in his column. Hoover was also extremely sensitive about this. And some of the more amazing, I think, anecdotes in my book are these moments where just ordinary citizens are having conversations that they believe are private. And then all of a sudden they're getting, you know, where, where they might mention that Hoover's a queer in passing, right? And then the next day or a couple of days later, uh, an FBI agent is at their door demanding to know where did you hear this and you better stop repeating it. I mean, there's one incident I mentioned where it's a group of women playing bridge in like rural Ohio. And one of them says, you know, apropos of nothing, oh, I heard Hoover's a queer. Uh, turns out one of the other women in the bridge club, her nephew is in the bureau. She mentions it to her nephew. The nephew passes it up along the bureaucracy. It gets up to Hoover himself. And then the next thing you know, this woman is being called into the field office, the FBI field office, and being given a firm, you know, talking to by the special agent in charge. Um, so he was extremely sensitive about this. And the people in the bureau were extremely sensitive and almost paranoid about this. I don't I didn't come up with any new information to indicate whether he really was gay. It wouldn't surprise me if he was celibate and just a very deeply repressed person. Um, but I do think that it's it's obviously it's it's a subject of enduring fascination. You know, some of the claims I think are are bogus. The notion that he was uh, a cross dresser, which is one of these things that's sort of you know entered into public consciousness. People just believe this as if it were true. It's not true. It comes from a biography that was written in the '90s by a British journalist who paid the widow of a mob boss who had dealings with Hoover. She claimed. 
that she was at a party at the Plaza Hotel in New York where she saw Hoover in a dress engaged in, you know, depraved sexual acts with with young boys. I mean, there's no validity to that. But it's certainly, yeah, I mean, it's it's certainly a subject of, of enduring fascination and I think always will be. So with with very few exceptions, maybe only one, not many of the people whose lives you chronicle in this book used their proximity to power to pursue gay rights or to pursue any sort of equality. And one of them is in the Carter administration and also one of the few women who who appear in your book, uh, Midge Costanza. Tell us about what she did. Well, Midge Costanza was the public liaison for Jimmy Carter. And very early in the Carter administration, she organizes the first meeting of gay activists at the White House. President Carter just happened to be in camp at Camp David that weekend. I'm sure it was not, you know, coincidental, but it was a pretty big, important milestone, you know, to have people, gay people who had been expelled from this building over decades now being welcomed into it. it was a very important symbolic moment. Mitch Costanza was a closeted lesbian. And she remained one, you know, for her entire life. It's something she was very cagey about. She didn't like talking about it. I don't think because she was ashamed of it necessarily. I think she just didn't, she really didn't believe that it should matter towards her advocacy, um, that she believed in equality for all people, regardless of their race or sexual orientation. And it shouldn't, you shouldn't have to be a gay person to advance the cause. But that is the first moment where you really see gay people being officially welcomed into the White House. You know, we've spoken earlier about JFK and he had his best friend was gay and he was friends with, you know, Gore Vidal. And uh, there was Joe Alsop, the columnist who was a friend of his. But gay people were not officially welcomed into the White House until the until the Carter administration. But it it, it didn't even last very long for for Midge, did it? No, she ends up you know, for other reasons, but this was part of it. There are you know, her enemies within the administration viewed her as uh, way too left wing, way too liberal. And they basically eased her out. Her office was moved from one right in the West Wing near the Oval Office. They moved her into the basement of the executive office building in the same, I think around the corner from the the closet where Richard Nixon stored his White House tapes, which is a pretty insulting uh, move. And then she resigned. I mean, so and, and, and I do think it's safe to say that that meeting with with gay activists in the White House was was part of the reason she took a real risk in doing that. So, James, this seems the stories you tell seem like um, stories from a yesteryear, from a time in American history that has long since passed. And I suspect that a lot of young people who have you know, grown up in in recent years when gayness is just an accepted part of American life at, at you know, up and down, both in government, the arts, everywhere, are, are going to read this, your book, and have their minds blown, not comprehending that the torture and suffering that so many gay people had to live through for so long. Yeah, I think it's just really important uh, that we understand where we came from as a country and as gay people that we understand what it was like and also to understand the amazing progress. I mean, things aren't perfect. We alluded earlier to the don't say gay bill in Florida and some of these other measures in in states. We're far from perfect, of course. But when you think about the status of the homosexual in America at the outset of my book in the late 1930s, early 1940s, this was a community of people who were universally despised 
They were morally condemned by all major religion. They were deemed mental defectives, mentally insane by the medical establishment. And they were criminals in the eyes of the law. And to go from that to today, where we have an openly gay cabinet secretary and no one bats an eye, I think it's an incredible story. And it's hard to think of another movement for social acceptance and, and legal civil rights that has accomplished so much in such a dramatically short period of time. I'd just like to close out by reading uh, from your inscription for the book, mm -hmm. um, for my family and for all those who unburden themselves of their secret so that I did not have to live with mine. Let yeah, that, pretty that. Much, that, that says it all. Um, I just felt an enormous sense of gratitude reading this book as a gay person who has never you know, nothing I've ever wanted to do in life has ever been hindered by my being gay. I've been very fortunate in that. And just having an, just really coming to an appreciation of, of the people who did not have it so easy and many of whom suffered and really risked everything, risked their lives, uh, risked their families, uh, risked, risked everything they had to make this country a more welcoming and accepting place. And I think uh, we really owe those people a debt of gratitude, gay and straight. I think they, uh, I think they they did they helped liberate the country I think, um, and and really moved us out from a very dark period, in in into an era where we are more uh, enlightened about about this aspect of the human condition. And you very have well, told well the story in a way that I don't believe it's ever been told before. So many congratulations on that. The book is Secret City: The Hidden History of Gay Washington by James Kerchick. James, thanks for joining us. Thank you, guys. Thank you.